All right, friends, we're going to get, we're going to get started. Uh, we're picking up, actually, from last week, we're picking up in the second commandment. And if you, if you were here last week, you'll remember having a conversation around the table, really about names, right? Where did, where did your name come from, for example? Uh, what does your name mean? Uh, if you could change your name, would you? Why or why not? And then we're sort of asking a, a, a little bit more pointed question is, can, can you separate the person and the name? Can, can those things uh, be separate? And we, we were actually using... Uh, This quote out of Shakespeare's tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, a super bit of famous text that's on the first page. So let's go back to that just briefly as a way of review. Because Juliet is actually asking this question as she wrestles with uh, the person that she's madly in love with, having seen for all of, you know, a hot second. Uh, But nevertheless, is is madly in love with him. Uh, But he is, of course, uh, from the arch nemesis family. And she's asking, I think, a really good question. Can, can we, at some level, separate name and person? Can we separate name and character? So let, let's just look briefly again at what she says. She says, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Here it is. Deny thy father and refuse thy name. I want you to be separate from your name. Or, if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. So if, if you won't do it, then I will. Right? I'll make some separation between who I am as a person uh, and my name. She goes on to say, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. I mean, what's Montague? Is it nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man?' I'll be some other name. And here's the question, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And so Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. What's in a name? That's the question. That which we call a rose by any other would still smell as sweet. And she's arguing essentially that you can separate those two things. And that's a really, it's a really good question as we approach God's name. For in the scriptures, in the scriptures, we cannot separate God's name from his character. We just can't separate those two things. We can't do what Juliet wants, ultimately, Romeo to do, or what she herself is going to do. We can't separate God's name and his character. Those two things will come together always. And we're going to play that out, certainly, in the Old Testament. We'll talk about the New Testament today and whether or not we can separate God's character from the name. But before we do that, let's, let's pray. We'll get into the details. A good and gracious Father, we say thank you for this opportunity to once again gather around these tables to share a little bit of life, but also, Lord, to gather around your word as we understand this ancient wisdom of what it means to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord, as we just have dipped our toes into these ten ways of loving, Lord, we continue to ask that you would shape our own hearts and minds, that we would not turn our affection or our attention 
that we would not turn our, our love towards any other God, ourselves, money, entertainment, power, position, but Father, that you would be solely our sustainer, our redeemer, our creator, God, that you would solely be our God, the one to whom we look for provision, for forgiveness, for guidance, and for deliverance. Lord, because you have delivered us, because your name has been inscribed in our hearts, because we bear your name as those who are on the way with Jesus, give us the strength to use your name with care, to use it as we call upon you in prayer and praise, as we cry out for needs in our lives. Continue to shape us so that we don't use it carelessly or flippantly, but rather that the way we use it reflects the kind of relationship that we have with you. And so, Father, we pray now that you would bless the time that we share this morning as we continue just to understand the power that is in your name. It is in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. All right, again, just a bit of review for those of you who weren't here. Again, on page one, as we look at the Old Testament, right, as we look at the Old Testament, uh, we see a number of names for God. In Genesis 1.1, uh, we have God, which is this word Elohim, right, or sometimes Ale. This is generic, right, this is just a generic God. It's the same word that's used when the Old Testament refers to the gods of Baal, or Ashtoreth, all the same, right? Elohim or El. So this isn't specific to Yahweh, right? It's to any god of the Old Testament, Elohim. Right? And we translate that into English in our English Bibles, just God. God. And that's used, of course, 2,599 times. We also have the word Adonai, that's this word here, right? Which means Lord. Adonai is really a, a title or position. This is said of somebody who has power and authority over you, right? So all of you Downton Abbey lovers, that's what you're thinking, right? Lord Grantham. That's a, it's a title of position and power. If you think about in England, the House of Lords, right? Same thing, position and power. And so God is often referred to with Adonai saying, you have a position of power over me. You are Lord, it's not his name necessarily, it's, it's title. And Abraham uses it uh, in Genesis chapter 15, where he says, Lord Yahweh, interestingly. When he says Lord and then uses God's personal name. The last one is Yahweh. Right? This is actually the name that God reveals to Moses when Moses asks for his name. Right? Because Moses is saying, hey, you're going to send me to Israel, and I'm happy to go, but they're going to ask who sent me, and who should I tell them sent me? And God says, well, I am who I am. And that, I am who I am, could, translate, could be translated, I was who I was, or it could be translated, uh, I will be who I will be. That is God's name. And we said last time that God's name, Yahweh, is a verb, this construction, interestingly, the one that we know to be Yahweh, this Y-H-W-H, 
This construction is really he is, not I am. Right? This is really he is, or he was, or he will be, right? when we refer to him. And we say it's really important, interesting, that God's name is a verb, right? not a noun. It's a verb. It's an action. It does something, which only solidifies that we can't pull apart God's character in his name. He is a God of action. His name, used about 6,000 times in the Old Testament, 6,500 times, uh, if you want to get really, really specific. So these, right, these are the names primarily of the Old Testament. We have some fun combos. If you get things like El Shaddai, right, God Almighty, uh, you'll get things like Jehovah Jireh. We talked a little bit about Jehovah last time. Uh, or Jehovah Nisi, God is my banner. Jehovah Rapha, God is my uh, healer. Right? Those are all sort of combos, ultimately, of God's name. But in the end, these are the three primary names of God in the Old Testament. Right? Elohim, Adonai, and Yahweh. Those are the three. All right? Any questions about these? Good. Then what we did, this is page two, we were talking about name, again, just a bit of review, that the second commandment is we shouldn't take God's name in vain. And as we try to understand that, what does it mean? It means that we should fear, love, and trust God so that we do not curse or swear or use satanic arts or lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. In other words, when we trust God with our hearts, we use our lips to call upon him as our creator and our redeemer. And so you can begin to see that if we were to use his name as a curse word, as something filthy, right? If we were to use it to swear by, if we use it to lie or deceive, those are at odds with his character, And if we use them that way, then our profession of who God is, is a lie. Because you can't separate the name and his character. And those particular things, they stand against the way that God works. But rather to use his name with care. And so we were trying to make a distinction last time that what does it mean to take God's name in vain? It is not, as we said, sort of the, the old Jewish practice, still in Orthodox Jews today, won't say God's name, right? They won't say Yahweh. Even if they were to read it, right? Rabbis reading it in the Old Testament, in the prophets, they won't say Yahweh. Because there is a level of fear that says, I might say Yahweh wrong, and then it would be in vain. Uh, That's not the position or the posture that we take. And it's built, it's really built around the Old Testament that prophets of old used his name. Jeremiah used his name, Isaiah used his name, Micah used his name, David used his name, right? Kings have used his name. Lots of people have used Yahweh's name. And lots of people have used the name of Jesus. So it's not just in the saying of the name, but as Jesus does in the New Testament, when he takes the Old Testament commandments, he takes them and ultimately kind of drills down to the heart, And so using God's name is really about how our heart is postured towards that name. Are we using it carelessly or are we using it on purpose? 
Now, I've had lots of good questions over the week about like, well, is this careless or purposeful? Right? Literally, pastor, is this, is this careless or purposeful? I love these questions, right? This, this, it's exactly like confirmation class, right? <laughs> Seventh graders are asking the exact same thing, right? Is this the right use? Is this a bad use? Uh, which, which is, again, is always just sort of fun to, to, to kind of peel apart and worth thinking about, actually, right? And it had me thinking about, so my grandfather, uh, my, this would be my paternal grandfather, uh, his phrase, like I can remember uh, ever since I was, I, just since I can remember, my grandfather would say, Lord have mercy. Kind of at everything, right? Something would happen, right? The Denver Broncos would lose and he'd say, Lord have mercy, which he might actually mean, right? Like he might want God to have mercy on the Denver Broncos, which there's probably other fans in the NFL who are praying the other way, so I don't know if they like cancel each other out. But nevertheless, he would just say it, right? Lord have mercy. He, he would say it all the time. And as I reflect on that, I think there are times, there are times when my grandfather was simply saying something that he habited himself into saying. So in that case, was using it in some ways very flippantly. He was just using it. It kind of became the thing that he said. Now, I think my, my paternal grandmother, as I recollect, my maternal, my paternal grandmother was, I think, always trying to correct my grandfather, uh, lovingly correct my grandfather, because my grandfather would say, Lord, have mercy. And then wherever my grandmother was in the house, she would say, he does. <laughs> right? Like, it didn't matter what happened or what was going on. My grandfather, Lord, have mercy. He does. Right? Like, this, it was just kind of this conversation happening in my house. I, as I reflect on it, I think it was my grandmother's way of sort of helping paint the picture that he, no, what you're saying, those words, right, mean something. And my grandmother's saying, no, he, he really does have mercy. Probably on your soul, Grandpa, right? That's probably what she's saying. And so th- there, is, there is beauty of just trying to ask, like, how are we using God's name? Are we using it carelessly? Are we using it on purpose, right? And that's a heart posture. It really is a heart posture. Well, let's do this. Let's get on to the third page, uh, because we, we can't not talk about Jesus, uh, who is God, but also has a name. And we want to deal uh, with that. So when God reveals, interesting, the fullness of his grace, he reveals a new name. Quite honestly, a personal name. So let's do this. You want your Bibles? Let's go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, and we'll look at this a bit in detail. So again, Matthew chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to back up just a little bit. I'll, I'll start at 18 just so that we don't just pop in kind of randomly. But uh, this is what Matthew writes. Says, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
And here's this verse. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, stopping here, Jesus literally means, Jesus literally means he saves. So, if we, if we just pause, right, Jesus is given a name. He's, he's going to be Jesus. And that name has meaning. In an interesting, beautiful kind of way, even at the revealing of Jesus, his name and his actions and his character can't be separated. He saves. So there's something beautiful, uh, kind of a congruency right, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between God's name of old, between God's name of old, this one, Yahweh, right, he is, and the New Testament, the revealing of God in the flesh as Jesus, literally meaning he saves so if you look at 21, you'll bear a son and you shall, name his, uh, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Right? His name and his character and his actions all put beautifully together. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians. Paul has something to say as well. So this is 1 Corinthians 12. So further into the New Testament... Now, Paul, Paul here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts, and that, that's not what we're hanging on. But we're going to hang on the kind of the introduction to those spiritual gifts, because it'll matter for us here in just a second. So, uh, starting at verse 1, now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, let's pause here for just a second because I want to catch this. Uh, this profession of faith is the early church's profession of faith. So let, let's just write it here. Uh, Jesus is what? Now, why should I pay attention to this phrase? And why, why is this the profession of the early church? Well, there, there are some things going on here. And because we're astute sort of Bible students, and we've been talking about the name of God... What could we conclude about this word? Lord. It's more than just what? Yes. So Les is saying, Jesus is more than just somebody common. Right? Uh, we said the Old Testament has really two words 
for Lord. One, of course, is Adonai. It's more than common. He has a position of power, right? A title. He's greater than me. What was the other one that we translate, your, uh, Lord? <laughs> so now, now what might we be saying? Not only is he not common, not only does Jesus have a position of power over me, Jesus what? You know, when you see an, when you see an is, uh, we like to think of this as an equal sign in language, right? Jesus equals, are you ready? Or if I really want to flesh this out, the one who saves. In this case, Jesus is Yahweh. So this profession of the early church is identifying Jesus as God, right? And specifically, the God of the Old Testament, right? the one that has been revealed to Moses on the mountain. Karen. Yep. 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 That's correct, right? So uh, Karen's picking up some beautiful language things. I, I love how she prefaced this. I don't mean to take you backwards. <laughs> However, right? We go backwards for a second. So she's right. Uh, I I write in all uppercase, so it's hard uh, hard for me. Let's go here. This is how it's written. Uh, this is how it's written in my translation, right? The ESV. Right? Jesus is Lord, lowercase O R D. Right? Now, some some things we should know is that in the New Testament, in the New Testament, uh, we don't get the word Yahweh. Right? Yahweh doesn't exist in the New Testament. So we don't, our, our translators, right, our English translators, uh, I'm going to look at the New Testament, and I'm going to see that when God is referred to, right, there's, there's no Yahweh. So I have to make a distinction now between the place of our Bibles where we use his real name, right, and a place when we're referring to him. Does that make sense? So in the New Testament, oftentimes, not always, Karen, oftentimes, there will be a distinction between L and lowercase o-r-d and all lowercase. Why do you suspect? So there'll be other times when we read the word Lord and it's all lowercase letters. And there are times when we read Lord, when it's just lowercase o-r-d, and a capital L. Which one is it here? 
I suspect most translations have a capital L. Yeah. So, there's difference here. Again, this is English translators trying to get a hold of what's going on in original language. But ultimately, when I see this capital L, lowercase o-r-d, in the New Testament, right, in the New Testament, I need to hear this differently than just Adonai. I need to hear it more in line with Yahweh and more in line with how we would read in the Old Testament, all capital letters, L-O-R-D. Those are a lot of fine-tuned details. That our English translators, they choose these things very carefully to try to help us understand, but it's a lot of detail. If you get nothing else, you should get that the New Testament, and particularly New Testament Christians, when they profess that Jesus is Lord, they're not simply saying that Jesus is a position of power, like Lord Grantham of Downton Abbey. When the early church is saying Jesus is Lord, they are saying Jesus is Yahweh. He is Yahweh with flesh on. Right, he has been incarnated. It is true that he has a position of power. But ultimately, in the New Testament, and New Testament believers, when they say Jesus is Lord, they are certainly professing that he is God. Now, let's keep going. because I don't want us to get too sidetracked here. I want us to look now at Philippians 2. This is St. Paul as well. So keep going to the New Testament a little further. This is the God eats popcorn section, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? So Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So I'm going, to start, I'm going to start really at verse 9. This is, this is Paul talking about, ultimately, uh, Christ's humility, that he is God, and yet he would humble himself in such a way to take on flesh and come to earth, and that he'd become obedient even to the point of death. This is verse 9. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That phrase, the name above every name, that gets played out in the latter New Testament in the book of Revelation quite a bit. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, here it is again, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm pointing this out because I think, again, it's not that you don't know this, but the name of God and his character or his actions, they can't be separated. And the profession that Jesus is the one who saves because he does save us from our sin, that is his action at cross and empty tomb. We also profess in this really simple thing 
that he is God. And that we equate him with the God of the Old Testament with flesh on. Now, we can get into all the Trinitarian conversation of three persons and one God, but that's for a whole another like, nine-week course. It's enough to say that Jesus is a name that is above every other name. Because Jesus is the manifested, incarnated name of God. He is the manifested, incarnated name of Yahweh. But this is Yahweh with flesh on. And so his is the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess ultimately that this is who he is. Now, I, I, want, us to think, uh, I want us to think briefly about our prayers. Yeah. Uh, how do most of us wrap up our prayers? Like, what, what's the closing line of most prayers we say? In Jesus' name. What do we mean when we put that at the end? We do. I do too. But what do we mean? Uh, just at the table for two minutes, why do we do that? What do you think? All right? Two minutes, why do we put that at the end of prayers? And we'll talk a little bit about it. Just two minutes, go. All right. Want to hear from the theologians in the room, all of you? Why do we, why do we tag our prayers? Why do we end our prayers in Jesus' name? Amen. He told us to. Where at, Les? It says, ask in my name and shall be given. Mm. So Les is a student of the Bible and a student of Jesus in which Jesus tells us, simply ask in my name and it will be given to you. Well, I like it. What else? Tom? Ah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Dominic's talking a little bit about uh, when, I, when I say at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, it does a couple things. Right? It admits at some level that in and of myself, I'm not worthy of prayers being answered. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm just not worthy of prayers being answered. So I'm not, I'm not asking on my own worth. Right? All these things that I've just said, I'm asking on the worth and the work of Jesus. You know? It's great. Anything else? That's how I was taught. So I don't even think I think yeah. about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus is saying, like, that's just what I was taught. <laughs> Me too. Right? That's, that's what I was taught, for sure. Right? It is. You know? And it becomes habit, without a doubt. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Then let's look at a couple things here. <clears throat> I think, and this is important for us, I think that praying in the name of Jesus is more than just tacking out kind of this rote formula to the end of our prayers. 
To pray in the name of Jesus is two things, at least. There's probably more, but these are two that I think are worth highlighting. One, to pray in the name of Jesus means to pray in full assurance of the great work that Christ accomplished in his life, by his death, through his resurrection, and by means of his continuing reign at the right hand of God the Father. Now, this, I think, in many ways is a little bit what Dominic was talking about, right? I'm praying not on my own worth, but in the full assurance of what Christ has accomplished. Now, uh, church, I think as, as we look at these, uh, what he accomplished in several things here, life, death, resurrection, and by means of his continuing reign at the right hand of God. I think, I think lots of us, and I think this is just kind of the nature of things, but we tend to focus uh, the work of Christ on a cross and a resurrection. Right? When we talk about the work of Christ, both Pastor Adam and I will frequently refer to death and resurrection. Right? Those two things, cross and empty tomb, Good Friday and Easter. Right? But to do so, and I guess I'm just admitting to you, to do so neglects two other important parts. One, his life, right? the way he lived, Right, actually matters to us. The way he lived actually accomplished something because he lived perfectly according to the law. He was a person of love. He was able to love his father with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor himself. Right? He was able to actually keep all Ten Commandments without sin. That's his life. So we, we, we care about his life and his ability to do that. We care when Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because without the fulfillment of the law, you and I, friends, we wouldn't have life. So we can't ignore his life. We also can't ignore the fact that he is sitting at God's right hand at present reigning as king. That he is presently active, right? He is presently ruling, his work didn't stop on Easter Sunday. Can we agree? His work continues. His ruling, kinging work continues because he ascended ultimately and sits at God's right hand where he rules in power and authority. So I think, I think it's important, right, when we think about Christ's work, and this is a work for myself, right, to, to remember that there are kind of four parts, not just two, not just cross and resurrection, but life, cross, resurrection, and ascension. That is the work of Christ. And when, when we put Christ's name at the end, Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, we're praying, as Dominic said, right, on his worth and the work that he accomplished, not on the kind of pittance that Dominic and I try to accomplish, right? Like, we're actually setting it in the work of Christ. And then number two, and this comes, again, from Richard Foster's book on prayer, he says, to pray in the name of Jesus means that we are praying in accord with the way and the nature of Christ. It means that we are making the kinds of intercessions he would make if he were among us in the flesh. So what is Foster saying? What does he mean that we're praying in the nature of Christ? What is he trying to help us understand? What do you reckon? 
Not all at once. Yeah, so Kim is saying that the more we grow, right, in the image of Jesus, the more that we are in and with him and his work in us, then ultimately we'll begin to pray the things that he would pray. That the kinds of things we pray for are the kinds of things that Jesus would pray if he were me with my flesh on. So how do we make sure, this is a question for the table, how do we make sure that we are praying in conformity to his nature. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That particular text of John fifteen seven, ask whatever you wish right, and it'll be done for you. Now, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's a text we should wrestle with some other time. Because there's lots of prayers that go seemingly unanswered. Yeah. Lots of things for which God's people have been praying uh, that are met, it seems, by God's silence. And so that particular task, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done, it's worth exploring, but I don't want us to get sidetracked by that. But rather, I think Foster is trying to get, and Jesus is trying to get, when we abide in him, I think this is what Kim is saying, when we, when we abide in Christ, then we're going to pray for the things that he would pray for. So as a table, I just want you to think of this. What's required in order to abide? Right? What do you have to do to abide in Jesus? All right. As a table, two minutes, we'll come up with some answers See where we are, right? What's required to abide in Jesus? Yeah, two minutes, go. How does one abide in Jesus? What do you reckon? What's that? Okay, try to be like him. How do we abide? Trust, okay. Following laws? Surrender. surrender. What do you mean? Surrender self. Yeah? Okay. Good. How do we abide? Keep his commands. Keep his commands. Yeah. It's a weird circle. Yeah. yeah. How else do we abide, Larry? Okay. Like you abide in your house. Uh-huh. So when we get connected to Jesus and we spend time with him, because that portion of scripture is also tied to the eye of the blind, you are the branches. Uh-huh. And so abiding in Christ is living in him so that you take on his character by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you're living in Christ the same way you live in your Mm-hmm. which we call an abode. Oddly enough, the place where we abide is an abode. Just me? I thought that was funny. No? You? <laughs> Guess I'll wake up. Yeah, so, so uh, Larry, 
your point is well made in terms of that text comes out of the text where, you, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, vine and branches, right? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The Father is the gardener, right? And so part of it is living in Christ Jesus, right? And him living in us. And then the work of the Spirit, if I heard you right, Larry, the work of the Spirit in terms of shaping and forming, again, who we are as we live in him. So, so let me ask this question. I want you to just, again, as a table. Can we live in Christ apart from, can we live in Christ apart from the Scriptures? Okay? Can we live apart from Christ? Can we live in Christ apart from the Scriptures? Secondly, can we live in Christ apart from the community of faith? Right? So two things. Can we, can we live in Christ, as Larry's talking about? Can we abide in him apart from the scriptures? And can we abide in him or live in him apart from the community of faith? I'm going to give you two minutes, all right, as a table. Go. Okay. This, this by the way, these, these are harder questions. Uh, these aren't easy questions, which shouldn't freak you out about your answers. I'm just saying, they're, they're a bit more to wrestle uh, can, we, can we abide in Christ Jesus? Can we live in him apart from the scriptures? How many of you think, no, we cannot? How many of you think, yes, we can? I appreciate honesty. That's really good. All right, let's ask the second one. Can we abide in Christ apart from the community of faith? How many think, yes, I can abide in Christ without the community of faith? It's fun to watch some of you are like, well, no. Yes? No. Maybe? If I do both? Like, <laughs> okay, how many, of you, how many of you think it's impossible to abide in Christ apart from the community of faith? Do we need the community of faith? All right. Can you abide in Christ apart from the community of faith? Okay. Should but could. Good. Yep. The church. The corporate church? The corporate church? Good question. Or is it fellowship of other Christians outside of the It is, as we describe in the third article of the Apostles' Creed, the community of saints. The ecclesia, the word we translate church, is people, God's people who have been redeemed. Can I abide in Christ apart from God's people? All right, this is good. This is really tough work. To the first question, to the first question, it is possible to come to faith outside of the Holy Scriptures. It is possible to come to faith outside of the Holy Scriptures. It is not possible to abide in Him apart from the Scriptures. The scriptures are God revealed. We hear at the beginning of John's gospel, right? in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Right? 
And the Word was God. And we know in John 1.14, the Word does what? He becomes flesh and He dwells among us. This Word, this narrative delivered to us right, by God's inspiration, we cannot abide in Christ apart from the Word, right, from the Scriptures. This is the place where Jesus is revealed. It's possible to come to faith outside of them. Not possible to sustain it. Is it possible to abide in Jesus apart from the community of faith? Right? From the communion of saints? From people? I uh, appreciated less here some distinction, theological distinction. It is, yes, I can, but you shouldn't. I can abide in Jesus apart from the community of saints, but you shouldn't. In fact, our profession of faith, the one that I referenced, right? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. I believe in a communion of saints, that we are put together on purpose. Uh, it's interesting, uh, forgiveness, forgiveness can't be extended without somebody else. You need somebody else to deliver that to you? We can forgive ourselves. Uh, but if I commit an offense against somebody else, I can't do anything about that unless they do something. My forgiveness has to come from outside of us. So we need, actually, we need the church to inhabit and embody the things of Christ for our own forgiveness. These are hard questions, really hard questions. But to do so, if we're going to abide in Jesus, it becomes imperative then that we live in the Scriptures, that we know God as He's been revealed to us in His Word. It becomes imperative that we know this Word. It becomes imperative that we study this Word, right? that it becomes a Word on our hearts. It is also, I think, uh, I'm going to use the word imperative here, to be in a community of faith. We need one another in order to abide. It is interesting, Jesus got himself a community. He said, follow me. He doesn't do it kind of by himself in that sense. He's not just a lone wolf with no community around him. He embodies community as well. If we want to get really technical, Jesus is already a part of community before he was ever enfleshed. Have we thought about God as a community? We don't typically. We think of God as a person. But he's three, so he's got their own little community. They're living in this kind of, uh, the ancient church fathers would say, in this kind of continual dance. We're all three persons of God living in community together, back and forth, back and forth. We need the church if we're going to abide in Jesus. All of this, all of this is just saying, man, if we're going to pray, we want to pray for the things that Jesus would pray for. We want to pray in accordance to his nature as one who saves, as one who's powerful. We want to pray in the assurance of the work that Christ has done for us, right? In life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's not just some rote formula at the end of our prayers. 
but actually fairly weighty if we're going to put Jesus' name to what we pray. If we're going to put God's name to what we pray. So as God shapes us even in our prayers, right, we've got to abide in him so that we pray the things that he would pray. Part of loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is having a care for his name. Both God and Jesus and using it on purpose. As we call to him, as we pray to him, as we give thanks to him, as we praise him, all of those things is a care for his name. Now next week, we're going to pick up the third commandment. And the third commandment is one of my favorite. It's also one that is setting the tone for our Wednesday nights here as we think about the practice of Sabbath. Here's what I would love for you to do before next week. I would love for you to read the Ten Commandments both from the book of Exodus and from the book of Deuteronomy. So that's Exodus, it's Exodus chapter 20, if you want to hold on to that. And then Deuteronomy chapter 5. So Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want you to read both of them, and I want you to pay particular attention to the third commandment, which is about the Sabbath, about Shabbat. Right? Because the language in Exodus and Deuteronomy are different as it talks about the Sabbath. And I want you to come back next time having thought a little bit about why the difference. Okay? Same commandment. Honor the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. But different reasons. So Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. That's where we'll start when we come back. All right? Let me pray for us and get us off to church. Good and gracious Father, we say thank you. We say thank you that you are our Father and our King. We say thank you that you provide in ways that we're not even aware of. We say thank you that in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, in that work we have forgiveness and deliverance. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would indeed guide us. (laughs) As we pray every week, lead us not into places of temptation. So Lord, I pray for this, my church family for this community of faith, for this, sisters and brothers. I pray, Lord, that, that your name would not only be on their hearts, but on their lips. That as they come to you in praise and prayer and thanksgiving, God, that that name, the name that has been written on our hearts, that that name would work in our hearts work in our lives to shape us and mold us deeper into the image of Jesus. So Father, as we head to worship this morning, or as we head home, having already been, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to be near us as you promised to, and that you, that you would make your blessings known to us this day, so that when we get to the end of it, we have nothing to do but say thank you. All of this we pray in the powerful and the mighty name of Jesus. Amen? Amen.